I'm an enduring skeptic of the perspective that oil companies are in control of this. They do have lobbying power and influence over broad things like climate policy, but the oil companies are not in control of all the big things that we could be doing to reduce oil demand uh, almost immediately. Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to the Earthlings podcast, the show where we talk about the big issues facing humanity in the early 21st century and what you, as an Earthling, can do about them. My name's Christian Roseland. I'm a writer, consultant, and energy wonk. I used to run the PV Magazine USA site. I used to work for RMI. I used to do a bunch of things. And I'd like to introduce you to my co-host, Lisa Ann Pinkerton. Hi, everybody. I'm Lisa Ann. And don't let Christian's modesty fool you. RMI stands for Rocky Mountain Institute. It's a pretty big deal. (laughs) He's a pretty big deal. And I'm pretty honored to be his co-host. I am the founder and CEO of Technica Communications. We work with startups involved in the energy transition. I am the chairwoman and founder of Women in Clean Tech and Sustainability. And I'm a former award-winning reporter for NPR and PBS and, you know, places like that. So Christian and I bring our expertise, well-rounded expertise from a variety of aspects into this podcast. And today we're here to talk about one of the big 800 pound gorillas in the room. Actually, we have lots of gorillas to deal with in our world today, but today we're just going to talk about the oil and gas industry. Yeah, a big one. Whether you're talking about climate change, foreign policy, or U.S. federal action on climate, it's hard to get around the oil and gas industry. Or the inaction on climate. (laughs) Some, many days, federal, on the federal (laughs) level, it kind of is the inaction, isn't it? It's the wake me up when we have a bill. So, you know, we've been, and I feel like we've been dancing around this one for a bit. We, we did an episode on EVs. We did an episode on the future of energy. And if we decarbonize our economy to keep a stable climate, that means not burning fossil fuels anymore. And that runs in up against the a massive lot. political and economic clout of that oil and gas industry. Oh, he who controls the spice controls the universe. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) And in the past hundred years, this industry has built itself up, grown its roots very deep into politics and society. And it's up against a rather, I think, rather formidable, formidable foe, which is the clean energy transition. Yep. And we will see how this giant falls, because I think at the end of the day, it's not really a question of whether or not the oil and gas industry goes away. I mean, it could mutate into something else, but we, we kind of have this choice where it's like, have a livable planet or stop burning oil. So this one's not just, you know, it's, a, it's an existential challenge for us, and it's an existential challenge for the oil industry. Gee, I kind of know which way I'd want to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to end up like the dinosaurs. Actually, don't you think it's, is it ironic? Is that the correct term? That the dinosaurs went extinct and all that plant matter and the dinosaurs themselves, you know, all all decomposed and became oil that now we're using for our energy and we're about to put ourselves in a similar, we're in extinction events right now. Yep. We've put ourselves in a similar situation. 
in the sixth mass extinction. That's right. Oh my yep. gosh, that's another show we got to talk about show. eventually. But I, I'm going to have to have a lot of alcohol for that one because it's super depressing. It is. It is. Yeah. You may or may not know the oil industry's operations account for 9% of all man-made greenhouse gas emissions and the fuels that it creates are respons- when burned are responsible for another third of global emissions. Mm-hmm. So together, that's pretty substantial. And I believe that statistic's just petroleum, not even natural gas. Yeah, I think you're right. And we'll put the resources in the show notes of our podcast if any of you are interested in following up. And, you know, we've heard a lot about peak oil supply, but that's just, that's just BS. There's plenty of supply. In fact, there are people out there, Obama was one of them, who said, you know, we may need to keep some of this oil in the ground. Uh-huh. That was not a very popular statement. But what about demand? Yeah, demand cratered during the pandemic, and it, then it came roaring back. But now, with more EVs coming on the road, what's going to happen in the mid to long term? Mm-hmm. So, I, mean, I think you've got a breakdown to break through, right? This, the oil industry has, is, they've seen the writing on the wall for many years. And the electric transition is happening. But where is it going and how unstable is it going to make our economy? How is it going to affect everyone? I think that's what really concerns people and why we've had such inaction up until this point. Yeah, I think that one's also highly regional. I mean, if you're in Louisiana, this doesn't look so good. If you're in another place that's not an oil and gas producer, or maybe if you're in a place, you know, here's the thing. Renewable energy creates a whole lot more jobs per unit of energy delivered than fossil fuels. It's much more labor intensive. So, you know, I think we're looking at creation and destruction, both. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think at the end, we could end up with a society and with geopolitics that are very different, but that could be a lot more egalitarian, ultimately. Yeah, I think when we talk about the decline of the oil and gas industry, you're talking about a shift and change of power and of control. And it, you know, I don't blame those in power wanting to maintain their power. And I think that's a, you know, a theme that we're going to start seeing throughout some of our episodes, uh, the decentralization of power and control um, and making our world more egalitarian. So you know, I'm sure you all could listen to us all day long, ponder oil and gas, but really we want to introduce you to someone who really knows about what's coming in terms of the fall of the oil industry. And he's someone that Christian knows very well. So I want to give Christian the opportunity to introduce him. Thank you, Lisa Ann. So Gregor McDonald, someone I consider to be one of the most insightful and knowledgeable writers working on the energy transition today. And You may not have heard of him. I kind of feel like in some ways he keeps a low profile, which is remarkable given that his reporting has appeared in Nature, The Economist, Bloomberg, Wall Street Journal, Wired, The Guardian. I could just keep listing publications on and on and on here. And he's been cited in a lot of publications too. His latest book is titled Oil Fall. And that's what we're going to talk to him about today. But before we get started, just a heads up, we recorded this interview in the second half of 2021, so any figures that we cite here are a moving target. We're coming into this two to five year period where oil demand growth is probably going to start flattening. In other words, the world will still be consuming a great volume of oil that's around that peak, but but that peak will start flattening out. And 
in oil fall, I was particularly sensitive to the tendency that human beings have. When you begin to talk about a peak or you begin to talk about, you know, the, the high, the all-time high of something, human thinking tends to think that there will be a, a, an immediate decline after that peak is reached. And in oil fall, I'm very careful to, to sort of warn and say that the, that, that the prognosis for, for this decade, the one that we're in now, actually isn't as great as one would hope if you're, if you're looking to see oil decline. And that's still my view. We, we've had this amazing rebound from the crash lows of early 2020, but in another sense, it's really not amazing. And it was, it was, uh, it's always like this. And, and one phrase I use is, we rebound to the system that we have, not to the system that we hope to have or that we will have in the future. Um, and so oil is rebounding because the world's infrastructure, which is the transmission of, of oil demand, is still pretty much what it was prior uh, to the pan prior to the pandemic. That doesn't mean that underneath the surface, the big wheels weren't spinning. So for example, China puts the peak in the demand for global uh, internal combustion engine vehicles around 2016, 2017. Again, it doesn't mean an imminent decline in oil, but it means that you've put in a, a major building block to the end of oil demand growth. And so the final uh, way to answer your question is, did the pandemic accelerate our arrival at the peak demand point? And I think we're, we may have some early evidence that that is the case. Um, and, and part of that is because most people will go back to work in their office but we've probably permanently peeled off at least five and maybe 10% of people from going back to work in their offices. And, and there may be another soft five to 7% of people who will do hybrid work. So that working at home and working in the office, that's enough in conjunction with the fact that internal combustion engine vehicle sales have peaked in China, in conjunction with the fact that European EV sales are roaring now, in conjunction with the new Biden administration and some policy around oil. So I think, you know, right now the world is rebounding to oil consumption levels close to 2019, but not quite. Next year, we'll probably rebound a little bit more and start matching those levels of 2019. But we're not going to see like a new trend to new all-time highs of global oil demand be sustained in any way. You could you could notch a little a little number there for a year or two, but we're we're probably into the plateau, and that that opens up our discussion probably in the rest of the podcast to the what I call the plateau problem. And again, it's humans think great we've peaked we'll decline. No, not necessarily. Global, global coal demand peaked in 2013. It took about six or seven years before the, for the decline to set in. Is that, is that a helpful analogy to oil? Oil is a very different type of 
uh, energy source than coal. But, I, but it, it's a warning. It's a warning, especially from a climate perspective, where you're really bearing down on trying to get emissions lower. It's a warning that we have to do more aggressive things in policy to get oil demand lower. And that's kind of a, been a big message of mine this last year. Please, you know, I'm asking people, please don't think that oil's just going to decline now because of the pandemic. It's not. And I don't think that's going to happen. And are you saying that you're advocating for more policy to reduce oil demand because it's not happening? It's not going to, you don't anticipate it would happen fast enough naturally or because the oil industry has such a strong political lobby to manufacture um, you know, uh, it, demand or maintaining its 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 uh its its prominency. Yeah, I'm saying so. So I like to look at I like to look at trends. To I like to explore how trends might unfold if we don't get further help in policy. So, for example, in the power sector, I think if we didn't have that much more help in policy good progress would still take place in the electric, global electricity sector because the economics are now working. But that's not the case in oil demand because there's a persistence uh, to an older ICE vehicle and the lifetime of ICE vehicles are, is lengthening. And so even if we have fantastic adoption of EVs like you have in Europe, you still have the problem of the existing ICE vehicles. And then just to answer your question uh, more specifically about the oil companies, just so you know, I am, I'm, a, I'm an enduring skeptic of the perspective that oil companies are in control of this. They do have lobbying power and influence over broad things like climate policy, but the oil companies are not in control of all the big things that we could be doing to reduce oil demand uh, almost immediately. So, you know, London and the UK has done a great job in halting oil demand and they're in decline. Uh, London put in road charges 20 years ago and it's been, fan, fan, I mean, I've, I've, I used to live in London and I lived, I, uh, I visited there uh, last year for the first time in 20 years, just an astonishing stark difference in the amount of air, visible air pollution in London. And that's 20 years of, of road charges and congestion charges and basically going, you know, this is the phrase, conducting a war against cars. Oil companies can't stop that. So Los Angeles can decide to introduce road charges next week. They don't. I have theories as to why they don't, but it's not because of the oil companies. And that's the big lever here in the United States to get emissions from transportation lower is road policy. So. Hmm. That's really interesting. And I want to follow up on that, but I, I want to take us back for a second here. You've talked about the plateauing of demand, and this mm-hmm. is something you go over in your book. What does that mean for the oil industry and for it's investment true. in petroleum in, in the oil industry when demand plateaus? It's devastating. So, so if demand plateaus for a software company, um, you, you know, you, that software company does not want to see demand plateau. 
But, you know, let's just say demand plateaued for Windows, Microsoft Windows for a number of years. Microsoft stock was somewhat of a no growth stock for a number of years. Well, that wasn't a huge problem for Microsoft. It had all these employees and the revenues continued to come in. Because you're selling software, the cost to sell the next unit, what's known as the marginal unit of software, is nothing. It's just, a, it's just digits. Uh, when growth slows for capital intensive and equipment intensive industries, extractive industries like copper miners or oil drillers of the oil industry, or even heavy equipment industries like uh, Siemens or, or General Electric, that's devastating. And the reason is the amount of capital that those companies have invested in heavy plant and equipment, it's almost always borrowed and it's always almost always financed. And when revenues flatten out and don't grow, the rate at which you can pay back uh, your investment in all that heavy equipment slows. And so one thing I was very clear about in oil fall, and I still am, is that the end of growth is the worst thing to happen to oil and gas companies, and especially the oil and gas service companies like, like Schlumberger and, and so forth, because what, what happens is the oil companies will just be forced to stop investing. And that's, that's pretty much where we are. It is a stagnant industry. There's, there's currently a lot of trader interest in the oil companies, right? Because they rebounded with the stock market and oil prices rebounded with the stock market. That's really just a, it's really just an eight month phenomenon. And the prices of the oil companies haven't gone on to new all time highs or anything. So, so the end of growth in every industry, well, when, the, when growth ended in, in coal, uh, most of the global listed coal sector went bankrupt. They're one of the most heavy uh, capital intensive industries around because they're miners and shippers, you know, at the same time, it's terrible. You know, conveyor belts, ships, huge properties, tractors, it's awful. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's devastating for the oil industry. And this rebound is just a, you know, it's just a respite. Um, but, but they're in the same, you know, they entered the trouble zone. Uh, they started entering the trouble zone before the pandemic. We've been talking a lot about transportation when it comes to oil consumption. I'm curious to know, uh, do you have a sense of, of how much oil is used in the, uh, the development of plastics or electricity and hydrogen production? And, um, you know, how, how do you anticipate these demand sources are going to affect the aggregate oil market? Well... There's different numbers thrown around, and I often sometimes need to have these percentages up in front of me. But um, you know, right now in, in the U.S., about about forty—I want to say forty to forty-five percent of our emissions are still coming from the transportation sector. The power sector used to just uh, beat out the transportation sector for emissions uh, output, but of course, since the crash of coal. Uh, the electricity sector emissions have now fallen below transportation. So in the U.S., at least, U.S. Uh, transportation uh, emissions are, are, the number, are the number one source. And then, in, and then the oil industry actually has been telling itself a story 
that it could make up for the for the loss of of demand in transportation as EVs roll out through the petrochemical complex. And I, I actually don't disagree that the petrochemical plastics and material science areas of of the petroleum industry. I, I'm actually I think I agree that there will be some growth there, but it, it just can't it just can't possibly make up for the imminent losses that are coming um, from the from the oil sector. I'll give you an analogy. Um, the global oil industry throughout much of the 20th century was always able to rely on the United States as a country and an economy that would each year consume more oil than it did the year prior. Um, that relationship pretty much started to die somewhere between 2005 and 2010. The U.S. is using about the same amount of oil that it used uh, 15 years ago. Okay, there's fluctuations, but it's roughly the same. The oil industry is looking at the same phenomena from the transportation sector. IEA says that global road, road fuel has probably peaked already. As I said, China put a peak in ICE cars and, and uh, EVs. I just recently looked at the data. EVs are already 8% of market share in China on track for this year. And China was pretty much coming up to that 5% level. Um, we might want to talk about that earlier. But basically, in technology adoption, it, it, it's very difficult to get a new technology from 0 to 5%. Once you get 5% market share, you're, there's a good chance you're on your way and the incumbent is going to be in trouble. That's where we are in China right now. So I, I guess maybe the most helpful way to answer that question is the oil industry will not uh, enjoy growth from whatever growth does come from petrochemicals and plastics because it's going to be hemorrhaging on the on the transportation side. And in fact, just to tie this back into my previous BP comment, even before the pandemic, when BP plotted out how much global oil demand would occur between, and at that point it's like, we'll call it 2018 to 2040, they had the bulk of it occurring between 2018 and 2025. When you looked at the curve, between 2025 and 2040, it was like, less, it, it was like a tenth of a percentage point. So even prior to the pandemic, BP had already done the math for themselves and realized that they were going to lose on the transportation side and, and at best just keep flat, you know, from growth in other areas. But my, my main sort of policy plea to people and countries and cities, everything, everybody from Los Angeles to Sacramento, to all these other states, my state of Oregon is, please, if you really want to hurt the oil industry, you know, don't waste time on fighting pipelines or what Exxon knew and so forth. Hit the cars with road charges. And wow, like the, the sensitivity to that will be dramatic. And, and I, I can't believe... We're still driving cars here in America, basically unpriced. We're, we're just we're just driving around, blowing out emissions, and there's there's no charge for that. So, like, you know, we got to get with the program here.
here in the States. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Oilfall talked a lot about uh, EVs and EVs eclipsing internal combustion engines. You've said there's this 5% point where that's sort of the inflection point where things take off. Yep. How much of the, 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 de- the attack on overall oil demand do you expect it to come from, do you think it can come from EVs and how much of this will come from demand side reduction like, you know, imposed basically vehicle miles traveled reduction imposed through things like demand charges, sorry, um, uh, road use charges? Yeah. Well, let's go to California because California is the, the great, you know, the greatest laboratory to answer all these questions and specifically the question that you just asked. Uh, by the way, you asked a somewhat of a tough, complicated modeling question that probably, you know, needs several hundred man hours to, to answer <laughs> accurately. But I'm going to, you know, I'm, 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 a, I'm an eager uh, person. I'll, I'll take a crack at it because we've, we've actually got some data already in the, in the bag to help us understand. So California has done one of the greatest jobs ever of incentivizing the adoption of electric vehicles. And they've got the data to show for it. We're all, you know, we, California automobile sales already crossed the 5% share EV uh, sales crossed the 5% share level a couple of years ago. And we're already up at seven, eight, nine. And for all I know, we, we may, we may stick a 10% share on EV sales in California for 2021. Let's see how the data shakes out. And, and what California's done is it's put a extra uh, registration fee on ICE cars. Uh, it, they've put, um, they've given the travel lanes uh, to EVs. EVs can, can go in the travel lanes. Um, they've put extra petrol tax on, on petrol in California and rolled it, rolled it out sort of in, in stages over the last couple of years. So California has basically done everything except for touch the hot rail of road charges. That's basically when you announce to your local population that starting, I don't know, 12 months from now or 24 months from now, you're going to have to pay a road fee to drive around Los Angeles on a daily basis. You can imagine why politicians want to avoid that. So, so what are the results from some of the policy rollouts that I've mentioned? California has basically held petrol consumption flat with an oscillation for about 10 years. And you have to congratulate them for that because in the last 10 years, their population grew from just over 36 million to 40 million. Now their population growth is probably topped out now. So that's an achievement. You grow your population about 10%. You keep uh, petrol consumption flat over that long uh, period of time. Now you have a bunch of EVs on, on the road. But notice, look, petrol consumption's not going down in California. So we already have a kind of natural experiment. What would it mean? Imagine, imagine you're asking me this question 10 years ago, and I say, hey, I wonder what would happen if we go from zero EVs to 
10% of uh, market sales. We stick a bunch of petrol tax on ICE vehicles. We stick an extra carbon registration fee on ICE vehicles. We, we save EV owners from having to pay those fees. We allow EV owners to drive in the fast lane. Uh, I wonder what would happen. Well, we just got our answer. Petrol, petrol consumption's about flat. That looks to me, Christian, like pretty good evidence. Yeah, it's pretty good without sophisticated uh, computer you know, software modeling. Pretty good evidence that, that petrol consumption is sturdy because the ICE cars don't go away the way we imagine that they're gonna go away. They just hang around, you know, like a, like a bad, like a nuisance relative yeah. who won't go away. So, well, especially in California, because, um, you know, there's, there's very little rust and, and other um, activities to destroy the, the bodies of these vehicles. And, and people love their cars in California. They'll, they'll restore yeah. them and keep them running. No, Neil Young said rust doesn't sleep, except in California. It does sleep. It's, you know, <laughs> buy, buy yourself a California car. And I had a California uh, Toyota pickup for years. And yeah, not, not a spot of rust on it. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I think I'm not going to speak for everybody, but I, you you hear a lot. I mean, obviously, there's people that like to get a new car every couple of years, and they'll they'll lease their cars. But most people want to buy it, pay it off, and run it into the ground. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's where your and that's where your your financial uh, benefit comes from. That's right. Well, so I I guess my question related to California then is, um. How many other states need to follow suit uh, for, for what, follow what California is doing to for us to get uh, a real tipping point? Or is it just that California should just keep doing what it's doing because it's such a massive economy? Unfortunately, we're not going to. So what, here's what we need. We need U.S. oil consumption to go into decline after refusing to go into decline for 15 years. That's what we need to have happen. I think waiting 15 years long enough for all the other policy efforts to work is gives us our answer. We need to, we need to have more policies. So other states can follow California, but if they get the same result, it means that Texas petrol consumption stops rising and goes flat, but it doesn't fall. And and so yeah, I, other states have emulated California. I mean, my home state of Massachusetts, I don't live there anymore, but that's where I'm from, has always kind of been neck and neck with uh, shoulder to shoulder with California in, in various policy rollouts. And a number of states that, you know, we don't expect have done wonderful things in terms of incentivizing uh, rooftop solar and so forth. And other EVs, they're good EV incentives across many other states but i get you know i'm just here to say you got to have road charges got to have you got to have ice car owners starting to pay for driving on a daily basis uh you know i've, I've talked with people about this i've got a bunch you know i and others have other ways in which you start rolling this out in baby steps um, there, there could be rebates for, for people below a certain income so that they could get out five or six years um, and, get, and have some of their uh, fees rebated. You know, there's all sorts of ways 
there's all sorts of ways to do it. And, you know, I've, I've reported on this issue in Los Angeles. Uh, air pollution from cars has a big impact on the lung development of children. It's insane to me that we can be having that kind of an impact without, without paying for it. And yeah. I, just don't, I just don't get it. I mean, I can see, well, I, playing devil's advocate, I could see how, I think a road charges would be very effective. Yeah. And I could see how it would be very unpopular. Oh, gosh. Yes. And that's why. very difficult yeah. to get a politician to back something like that. That's right. And we have, so you know, we've got, we've got what toll would, roads. We've got, you know, you, you pay to travel on the Massachusetts Turnpike and the New York State Thruway and the Ohio Turnpike. Um, you know, it's not like eastern populations haven't been introduced to, to toll roads. I, I, I think, uh, you know, there's, there's advantages, too. You might find many commuters not unhappy about paying a little bit because you know what London found when they introduced their first toll charge? They found that 10 to 15 percent of the population that had been driving into London, it was completely discretionary for them. It was unnecessary. It was just a choice. As soon as just a little road charge came in, you just took off that 10 to 15 percent layer. And in fact, it made the commute better for those who did have to pay. So, so there's actually some upsides here, but you would need a creative and uh, articulate politician and set of politicians to explain it. And, yeah, well, uh, and I can, see, I can see how it could be a political hot potato in, on a yep. number of fronts, uh, most, in, most critically that um, it would dispropor- probably disproportionately harm people uh, on the lower economic uh, end of the spectrum, people yeah. in dis- disadvantaged communities who are also getting hit from in for, with higher asthma rates and, and, and lung problems, pulmonary problems because of the ice vehicles. Mm-hmm. So I understand it's a very, it's a complicated challenge. For, for America, it is. For Europe, less so. But actually, you know, there are other European-like countries that, you know, to your point, have also had difficult. I mean, Auckland, New Zealand, um, hasn't particularly done a very good job with its transportation policy, and they're they're still stuck in thinking about widening roadways and so forth. So, but anyway, I don't mean <laughs> to be flippant, but I have a final follow-up question related to the road charges because I'm curious to hear your opinion on why you think road charges would be a more effective tool than what we're seeing uh, with cities and states and sometimes countries banning the sale of ICE vehicles by a certain date? Number one, those are aspirational targets. Uh, Almost universally have not been codified or perfected into law. And it's also important to remember that that concerns the ban on the sale of internal combustion engine vehicles, not the ban on the use of ICE vehicles. So 2030, 2040 and 2035 and even 2030 are not soon enough for us, for what we need. That doesn't, that's, so on the positive side, that definitely sends a a helpful signal to the marketplace where people are going to think, okay, I'm not going to be able to buy an ICE vehicle 
in, in this country by by 2030 or that country by 2035. That's good. It's good to have that policy, but that's not going to affect oil oil consumption between now and the end of the decade. And this is a very crucial decade for for reducing emissions because we're in such a great position to do so. Well, so we've heard some people talk about how global oil is traded in U.S. dollars. So as that industry declines, there's a danger of the dollar losing its global prominence. So what happens to the dollar when the oil industry starts to fall? Yeah, I mean, we're already there. And since World War II, the dollar has been kind of the go-to currency for international trade. And in particular, it is the denomination by which other countries who export a lot to us uh, purchase U.S. Treasury bonds. So China has built up a pretty big war chest of U.S. Treasury bonds over the decades, as has Japan, because they exported a lot of goods to the U.S., got dollars in return, and decided, well, with these dollars, we'll buy U.S. Treasury bonds. Um, we're, we're sort of past the time where oil would be the, the lever or the, or the ground zero for the dollar's strength internationally. We're, we're kind of in a world now where uh, the dollar value of, of global goods traded is really the important factor and the dollar value of global treasury bonds traded is the global fact is the important factor, and uh, yeah, every once in a while there are theorists who uh, there's sort of a little conspiracy theory about a decade ago that one of the reasons for the Iraq War is that Iraq was trying to set up an oil trading system in euros rather than dollars. Uh, I just think that that you know that's a real stretch. Um, it just wasn't it just wasn't really that that important. So um, also, I've noticed that traders in recent years have been more increasingly confounded about how oil moves against the dollar. You go back 20 years, dollar rises, oil falls. Oil, oil rises when the dollar falls. There was a better relationship. That relationship has become muddied now just for the reasons that I've said. It, it's, you know, the U.S. exporting movies in dollars, uh, Boeing airplanes in dollars. Uh, China shipping stuff to us and accepting dollars. That's that's where all the dollar action is now. Mm -hmm. So so to get back to the oil industry, if the dollar is more secure, what does the next 10 years look like for the oil industry? Yeah, so my model for the global oil industry would be imagine... um, Imagine a large playing field in the shape of a in the shape of a circle, and as global oil consumption first flattens, when it, when it first starts to flatten, which is I think that's where we are, the circle starts contracting, and imagine all the oil companies as not being able to move, right? They have to stand in place, and you've got the little exploration companies out on the outer edges of the circle. And in the center is Saudi oil 
and United United Arab Emirate oil and Iraqi oil. You know, that's that's down in the in the center. And so that circle contracts and contracts. And over time, more people are on the outside of the circle. And what that means is their ability to make a profit from extracting and selling oil just gets too difficult. Um, and, and, and what's happening is the oil market is shrinking towards the lowest cost producers. So one of my views is the long tail of global oil consumption easily goes out to the end of this century. So it goes out another 60 or 70 years. There won't be much demand out there 60 or 70 years from now. There'll probably still be some industrial processes and chemicals and so forth where you still need some oil. And the Saudis will be out there with the UAE and Iraq, if Iraq is a stable country, they'll be out there providing that oil. And all the other players will have disappeared from the, from the field. And that process has started now. Yeah, I think that's tragic sensitivity at the margins that you talk about. So you finished the oil fall series now. What's next? What's your next writing project? Well, I've been telling subscribers that I'm going to update Oilfall and people who purchased Oilfall. And I've, I've had problems. I've had tech problems and the problems of the pandemic. I still want to update Oilfall um, just with the latest data. And, and it's going to basically say a lot of the things that I've said so far in this, in this interview. Um, but I think the, the next sort of area or writing project that I want to talk about is uh, somewhat of a, I don't know if this is a radical idea. Some people think it might be related to MMT, but you know, I'm a big uh, advocate for the building of infrastructure uh, in the United States because I think we're we're 40 to 50 years uh, behind in the infrastructure that we that we need. And what I want to write about is how when you build the right infrastructure, it doesn't actually have a cost. There's only a cost to not building it. Um, and I'll just, you know, I'll give you an example of that. So let, let's say the United States decided that it didn't need to raise taxes anymore to build the crucial infrastructure that we need. We don't need pay-fors. We could just print the money and build the crucial infrastructure that we need. Would that be a problem? Would it be inflationary? No, it wouldn't be a problem and it wouldn't be inflationary because the because the very definition of the infrastructure that we need is the infrastructure that we must have to produce GDP. And the dollar, just to get back to the dollar, the dollar is backed by American GDP. You know, that's, that's what our currency is backed by. It's backed by uh, $18, $19 trillion worth of GDP and the belief that we'll come in around that number next year and the year after. That's what the dollar is backed by. So there would be no punishment from international markets for printing money to build the crucial infrastructure that we need. What do we need? We need, we need a new tunnel between New Jersey and New York. We need to have the entire uh, train system rebuilt between Boston and Washington, DC. We need high-speed rail. We need water systems replaced. We need local transit in uh, cities. These are not wasteful projects. They would be used heavily uh, by the populace, they would create work efficiencies and they would boost GDP. Um, and therefore, we would, you would, 
the government would simply, by printing dollars, it would be converting dollars into useful infrastructure. And you know what? I, I know people think this is outlandish perhaps, but that actually is how the United States is, has operated for much of the 50 to 70 years. World War II was printed. We printed World War II, okay? I mean, we, you know, we, it's like we basically created extra money, distributed it in the economy, built a bunch of war infrastructure, won the war, and what did we get for, for beating Hitler? We got huge GDP, not only here, but we got even greater GDP here because we helped the GDP of Europe rebuild. It's the same, it's the same idea. Well, that Gregor McDonald really knows his stuff. And for those of you who are interested in following this topic further with him, you can check out his book, Oil Fall. And also he has a newsletter called The Gregor Letter. So Christian, after listening to all of that, one thing struck out at me that I would like us to explore a little bit for everybody that's listening. And it's this concept of the markets being, quote, tragically sensitive at the margin. And I know you've looked into this from your friendship with Gregor. So can you explain to us what that means? Sure, I, I will try. <laughs> Gregor is the expert on this, not me. He's right. the former oil trader. But, you know, the way the, what, what Gregor and I have talked about is, is that in markets like this, if you have, say, say you have this, this steady state between supply and demand, if you incrementally add a little bit of supply, prices can really fall. But if you incrementally add a little bit more demand than there is supply, prices can go way up. And I think through the pandemic, we saw that. You know, we saw demand go down, prices collapse. We saw demand go up. And I think that, that what that has to do with is these aren't very elastic markets. You know, a, a lot of petroleum is used for things that, you know, people driving to work and to get groceries. And, you know, they're going to pay that price at the pump no matter what it is. And, and so because so little of it's discretionary and because it's, you know, demand is kind of inelastic, those changes in supply and demand can really have big impacts on price. But I think what's even more interesting than that is the sort of second order results of this and what happens when, when you see these kinds of big swings. You know, for instance, you know, if, if you have these high prices, it suddenly indicates big demand for the oil industry. But if you have a situation where demand is going down and or even steady state, but there's not really the prospect of it coming back up, which is that's the long term long game of what EVs are going to do to oil, mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. you have a situation where investors don't want to invest. People don't want to right. put money into an industry where there isn't the prospect of growth, right? Even if things are down for a little bit, if there's the prospect of growth in the future, it looks like a good investment. But something that's just, even if it's a very high volume, and I think that this is this, is this whole thing about the margins, right, is it's not the overall volume that's the most significant factor here. It's, it's the margins, right? So even though the volume can be really big, if it's at a steady state and declining, man, that's really going to turn off people from wanting to put money into this. Absolutely. And actually, we're starting to see that. I remember reading an article in CNN in preparation for this, this episode, and Blackstone CEO Stefan Schwartzman was saying that there's, it's getting harder and harder for fossil fuel companies to borrow money to fund their production. And without new production, supply can't keep up. And so then that sends the prices up higher. And that leads into the broader movement around these 
very large institutional investors who are divesting from their fossil fuel investments. They're taking money out of the industry and putting it somewhere else. Yeah. And let's be clear, most of this does not have to do with activism. Most of this has to do with <laughs> these folks are fairly immune to activism. Uh, they, a lot of this has to do with them seeing this and seeing like, wow, this this market, you know, the prospect of growth isn't necessarily there. Whereas when you look at something like EVs or lithium mining or solar, you know, suddenly you see markets where there's huge prospects for growth, right? And even if these markets are newer and, and riskier, they still, they offer they offer something for the future in a way that oil may not. The increases in oil demand are coming now from the developing world. So, you know, things like China's EV fleet growing, that's a big deal. You know, that's really, that's really damning mm -hmm. for the oil industry. And I appreciated what Gregor said around, because a lot of people assume that plastics or gaining electricity or energy from, from hydrogen production. Like these are places that the oil market is going to uh, move to when demand for gasoline or diesel drops. And I appreciate that he said, well, actually not really. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hard to replace transport right? fuels. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's a big one. And, and to be clear, you know, there's still a lot of demand from trucks, from ships, from, you know, airplanes, there's there's a lot of other places where this goes, not mm -hmm. just, you know, personal automobiles, but a, a lot of those, you know, road transport in particular, the rise of the EV is going to, it's going to have some major effects throughout our society that I think that people really aren't uh, necessarily mm -hmm. as, as clued in on. I mean, I think that this looks really different if you're living in, say, you know, the UK or, or Germany or New England versus living in Louisiana or Saudi Arabia or Venezuela or someplace that is really dependent on oil, you know, that's going to have impacts throughout mm -hmm. their economy and mm -hmm. their society in, in a big way. I mean, you, you've already, you already see that, that you already see the, the sort of the rise and fall of places that are really dependent on petroleum revenues. And it can be really tragic when, when the money isn't coming in anymore. It's sort of like a drug. You know, people talk about the oil curse because you know, it, people get addicted to having this this source of this big source of funding coming in. And when governments start to base their programs on it in Venezuela, it was the social programs on having this money come in and then it's not there anymore. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Ouch. And I also appreciated, yeah. you know, that there's that Gregor said, you know, if you really want to damage the oil companies, you need to reduce demand. And and what we've been seeing are policies that attempt to sort of restrict supply or, you know, right. Uh, and that all that does is create energy inflation. And in reality, you need to reduce demand and the road charges being Gregor's um, uh, solution, which, you know what, I think totally doable if you've got the political will to pass it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny, that whole thing about restricting supply. One of the things that he's made clear in uh, issues of the Gregor letter since then, which I read, is that you know, line three, Keystone XL, these are not as big of supply routes and that stopping these or slowing these down, you know, stopping Keystone XL didn't make that big of a difference either way. But it, if we if we ever did really stop oil supply, oh, my God, before demand stops, that is, you know, if we stopped supply before, while the demand was still there, oh, my God, that's like the colonial pipeline <laughs> ransomware attack like that. That would be, you know, gas prices would shoot through the roof and 
people would be really, really Yes, they mad. would. And I can see why there's very little political milf will for this. And, and why, you know, on yeah. some level, collectively, we've been dragging our feet on this issue because we have an entire infrastructure and a way of life built around using oil. And it's, it's hard to make that yeah, transition. I mean, it, and like you said, it's an addiction. It's easy. I'm used to it. It works. Yep. And, it, and it's, it's, it's like sort of, it's a habit on so many levels. I mean, to be real and fair, like our economy is based on yeah. the use of liquid fuels. Like we can't, okay, we, you know, we can, we transitioned away from coal. You know, it's easier for us to replace coal and gas. And that's been all economics system. anyway. You know, we, we sort of moved mm -hmm. from coal to gas. You know, more more than we added renewables, it was a shift from cold gas. You know, okay, we can make power some other ways. We can do hydropower, right? You mm -hmm. know, but before the EV, man, I, I mean, EVs are still a very small portion of the cars on the road. And really, like, groceries getting to the store, you know, people getting to work, you getting to go get the groceries. Like, there's so many things that are vital to, you know, heating in the winter that are, are vital to our lives and our economy that are based on petroleum and this is not going to be easy to transition off of this is and, and i say this as someone Absolutely. who's a really big proponent of yeah. getting off of as fast as humanly possible but i'm also realistic about the fact that this is not easy and it's going to take time and you know we have to do it we have we to. have to do it on the yeah, and, side. and it is you know all of that There's is changing no uh, but it's ever so slowly that the technology is still developing we're probably you know they we say we really get a chance to make the greatest impact in the next 10 years if we're going to reverse the worst effects of climate change. And, and to do that, you really need political yeah. will. But oil yeah. has been not only what powers our lives, but what powers politics. And oil economies are fundamental yep. in states like Louisiana and Texas. Yep. Absolutely. Whole nations, whole like nations. you said, Venezuela. The Gulf states, yep. Saudi Arabia, Russia. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole bunch of them around the world that are just mm -hmm. simply, that are petro states. What people forget, though, is or maybe what they're not aware of, is a, a point actually that you made to me was that labor is more intense when you're talking about renewable energy per unit delivered. So over time, as we transition to a renewable energy landscape, we're actually providing more jobs and a wider variety of labor from low-skilled labor to high-skilled labor per unit delivered. Yep, absolutely. This means more jobs. Absolutely. You know, and, and a lot of the jobs in the transition and then jobs after, afterwards in, in operations and maintenance, though that varies according to renewable energy source. But, mm -hmm. you know, this also remakes the political map of the world because suddenly it's the nations that are the producers of it's not just the production of the energy, but it's the production of the stuff to make the energy. So right. solar cells, lithium ion batteries. And by the way, China's cornering mm -hmm. the market on both of those things. I mean, just because China set up a processing plant for some of these chemicals to make lithium ion batteries doesn't mean other countries can't do the same thing. And you just ship that material elsewhere. It's not as if it's different from economies that are dependent on the region in which the oil resource is located. Yeah. Yeah. Solar cells can be made a whole bunch of different places. Silicon's yeah. the most abundant element in the Earth's crust. You know, that's that one. It's it's a matter of political will and deciding that you yeah. want to have those industries. I, I, in, obviously, it's a little bit more complicated that, than that because of WTO rules. 
but you know, like you said, it, it, it takes the political will to do this and, and shifting from a fossil fuel or specifically oil based economy, uh, reshapes the political map, as you said, and it diffuses power. Yes. And this, I think this is going to be one of the most fascinating, I don't even know if this is a second order effect, third order effect of what's happening here is, you know, suddenly OPEC won't be such a big deal anymore in a world run Mm -hmm. on electricity, you know, from the wind and the sun. It just, that's not Russia's power. Russia's not. Well, we'll have to come up with different reasons to go to war. You know, we can't go to war over oil anymore. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> wars over. Get ready for the lithium oh, we're already wars. already in the cyber wars, um, so I think we'll be here for a while. But, you know, yeah. th- th- it's, it's all about control, right? And I think that's what we're seeing. We're right yeah. now in the middle of this, this power struggle between the entrenched interests of the oil industry and all of the power and the money and the influence that they have and the new energy resources and technologies that are coming up that are clearly more, they're, they're more economical. They're better for the planet. They provide more jobs. They diffuse political power across spectrums. And this is unsettling for entrenched interests. So you're seeing this vie for power that's coming up. I think that's what we're going to see in the next five to 10 years. This is, this is going to continue to play out because there won't be as much control over politicians or maybe that control will go to the renewable and we'll have big renewables will be like the big thing we bitch about <laughs> in 10 <Big> years. Renewables. <laughs> <laughs> Having known the head of the Solar Industries Association, I think that that's a, that's a reality that she's ready for. She welcomes it, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's already academics like Thea Riafrancos who are talking about that, about, you know, what happens when the clean energy industries gain political power in a capitalist economy, you know, like, well, we're about to find out. I welcome that reality because, you know, (laughs) we can't continue burning fossil fuels. It's very clear. Now we've known, we've known this since 1890 in the article in the New York times that said burning fossil fuels will create climate change. Like we've known about this for a long time and we have ignored it because it was convenient. Well, we're just master procrastinators yeah. is really what it is. This is part of the human you know, condition. Yeah. Well, this has been a fascinating episode. And, you know, mm-hmm. great to have Gregor on the show. I think we'll probably be hearing from him again in future episodes. And I think we, we started a lot of threads mm-hmm. here that we're going to have to follow up. Uh, but until then, I'm signing off. Thank you, listeners, for joining us today. That's right. Thank you all. Uh, And we'll see you on another rotation of this blue-green space flower. Bye, Earthlings. Bye.